Father, we thank you that we can go to the nations to proclaim the name of Jesus. Father, we thank you for the call that you have on our lives to do that. May we be people who are on mission for you in our neighborhoods, throughout the world, sending, going, and giving to the mission of Jesus. Pray that you'll be with us now as we open up your word. Bring us transformation, not just education. In your name, amen. Amen. You may be seated, kids. You are now dismissed. And those of you who are online, I realize that my microphone was still on, so you probably heard me singing. I apologize for that. I'll pray for you and your ears. <laughs> well, it is uh, good to be with you as we continue our series in the book of 1 John. It's very appropriate as we look at where we are as, as a world, uh, not just as a nation or as a people in Indiana County, but this book has been ministering to my heart, and I pray it has been ministering to your heart as well. Today we're going to be looking at the importance of walking in love. As I made the, the, the statement last week, there's a lot of walking that we do in the book of 1 John. Talking about walking in the light of love, talking about walking in the light, talking about walking as children, walking in discernment. We've been talking about walking. Clearly, we have a Christian walk. We're not Christian sitters, right? We walk as believers. Well, let me uh, open this up with a, a very interesting story that transpired in my life because it launches us into, I think, the, 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 the point that John is trying to make about love and how we walk in love. Not too long ago, I had to go to the police station, not because I did anything wrong, just want to let you know, but because I was going to uh, make a visit. And while we were outside in the Indiana County Police Department, you have to wait outside for them to let you in, something I didn't know can't just walk in you have to wait and then you have to share with them why you're there what's the purpose of your visit to the police department well we share our our, our the person that was with me we share the reason why we're there and this other guy comes up and and he has to share the reason why he's there now I don't try to eavesdrop or look down on people or whatever this was just a very interesting transpiration of a moment that I had to to just try and put in my mind this this guy this gentleman came up and he was saying I'm innocent I did not hit that car and run. Okay, well, that's what he's saying. I, I need to plead my innocence. This happened yesterday. Now, what was very interesting, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to make a judgment upon this man, but it was interesting, the apparel with which he was wearing to claim his innocence. Okay, he came to the police station wearing a shirt that said, don't tell drunk I'm God. Think through that. Right now, now you get it. Right, it was it was a, a beer shirt that was trying to say, "Don't tell God that I'm drunk," but he was pretending as if he was so drunk that he mixed the words up. Now this guy is coming to the police station, trying to admit his innocence, saying, "I didn't hit that car," and he wears a shirt that says, "I drink a lot." Just interesting, right? It was one of those things where I had to take pause and say, "Why would you wear that shirt?" <laughs> right. Because he was trying to say something, but his apparel was saying a little bit of a different story. Now, I share that story, again, not in judgment, just an interesting point of fact. And, and I think that sometimes, as believers, we too can say things with our mouths, but our lives tell a different story. And the same thing is true when it comes to the idea of, of love. It's very easy to say, oh, I love you. I love that person. I love you so much. But to live it out is a different story. When it comes to loving our brother and sister in Christ, 
We can easily give lip service to love, but it's not always easy to walk in love. But loving one another is, is not easy. We have to recognize that. But we also must recognize it is necessary. Loving one another is not easy, but it is necessary. So if loving one another is necessary, and this is what John is talking about in his letter to the church, how do we do that? I'm glad you asked that question, because that's what I believe John answers. The question of how do we walk in love? Most importantly, how do we walk in love with one another as a body of believers? So if you have your Bible with you, please open to 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be uh, reading verses 10 through 24. It'll also be on the screen. Those of you who are online, you could read it on the screen. Pull out your app, pull out your Bible. However you read it, please read it along with us. 1 John chapter 3, 10 through 24. The word of the Lord. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure, reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whenever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. Wow, very powerful passage. And again, we see the word abide showing up again and again. We talked about this, the importance of the word abide, and we will end with the conversation on abiding once again because it is an imperative portion of this letter from John. John is writing, if you remember, to a church that has been easily duped by many false teachers. They were coming in trying to lure the church away to a new sense of understanding, which they needed discernment in order to discern who was right, who was wrong. John affirmed in them the belief that they had from the beginning that Jesus is Christ, who was fully God, fully man, died and rose again, and that is the basis of their belief. He also brings them back to the reality of love, that we are to love one another. When we talked about this a couple weeks ago, we saw that the false teachers were trying to create this atmosphere of I'm better than you because I believe something different. 
You can imagine that when that type of ideology invades a church, there is a lack and a loss of love for one another. Because if I think I'm better than you, I look down upon you. And if I look down upon you, I don't like you as much. And if I don't like you as much, I really soon quick, quickly stop loving you as I'm called to love you. And so John has this conversation about not only are we to live righteously, we are also to love one another. How do we know that we are from God? How does the world know that we are from God? We have love for one another. Man, this is some really deep stuff that I think we often gloss over or don't dig deep enough into. So John answers the question of how do we walk in love for one another? I believe he gives us five keys in how we are to walk in love. And the first key is the key of releasing. Point number two is release every aspect of envy you hold against your brother. Release every aspect of envy you hold against your brother. Love is a key indicator of our salvation. Love is an important aspect of who we are as a believer and as a body of believers. When people walk into a church, they should feel, sense, experience, and see love. They should see it. It should be one of the first things that they see and feel as they walk into a church building. Do these people actually love one another? It's a key indicator. And here we see this juxtaposition between good and evil that John brings in this passage. Again, he's already talked about the evil and the good, the righteous and the unrighteous. But here he gives a biblical image of Cain and Abel. If you go back to Genesis 4, you'll see Cain and Abel. The story of Cain and Abel was that Abel offered a sacrifice of meat to the Lord. He sacrificed big. He took the animals with which he was working with, took the best of them, and sacrificed them to the Lord. And if you were to go back into Genesis 3, God, when he made a way, made clothing for Adam and Eve, he sacrificed an animal. Cain, on the other hand, decided that he was just going to sacrifice some wheat and said, here you go, this is somewhat the good stuff that I have, but I'm just doing it out of obligation, not out of passionate desire. Well, God accepted Abel's sacrifice and denied Cain's, and Cain got upset. He got frustrated that God would love Abel more than him. And so God comes to Cain and says, don't allow the enemy a foothold because you're on the door of sin. Don't move forward with what you want to do. We know the story. Cain killed Abel. And here we see that it was because he was unrighteous, he was listening to the wicked one, but what began this desire for retaliation against his brother? Envy. He looked upon his brother's acceptance by God, was jealous, angry, and it moved into hatred and finally murder. So John shares with us that this is also an equation that you and I could possibly walk down. I love how Aiken, one of the, the commentators on the book of 1 John, he says this, as Stott affirms, jealousy, hatred, murder is a natural and terrible sequence. The motivation behind Cain's initial envy illustrates the conflicting nature between good and evil. In essence, Cain murdered his brother Abel because the wicked person hates the righteous. 
So he sees his brother who is accepted and himself who is not. He compares his situation to his brothers and realizes, I'm lacking. And so because I'm lacking, I need to kill the one who is not lacking so that I no longer lack. So that I will be the king of the hill. So that I will be the important brother once again. His jealousy moved to hatred. But it began with the idea of comparison. Comparison sets the stage for envy and hate. Comparison sets the stage. He looked at himself, what he lacked. He looked at his brother, what he had. And his jealousy led him to hate and hate to murder. How often in our own lives do we walk in comparison that then sets the stage for envy and hate? When we look at those who are in our church or our family or even in our community and we say, why is God giving them all the good stuff? Why do they have it better than I do? Why is their life easier? Why is their family nicer? Why do their kids obey in public? Why, why, why? And all of a sudden that comparison leads us down a path where we begin to resent those who have what we do not have. It could be possessions, it could be righteousness, it could be, you know, children, it could be grandchildren. Whatever it is that we compare ourselves to, we end up having hatred. Let me share with you a very embarrassing and immature story of myself in this idea of comparison. I might have shared it once before, but it's pretty, it's pretty hard to swallow for me as a pastor, as a person, as a grown-up, Right? When we were planting a church at the University of Pittsburgh, we were probably, it was about three or four years in, and we always had this, this other church plant that was planting alongside of us. Now, usually, you'd say, praise God, God was moving in this, in this place in a big way that a different church plant was coming in at the same time we were coming in. We literally launched services the same weekend. It was a bit annoying. Right, And so I had all of this going on within me, and this church plant that was there was able to raise a whole lot more money than we were. We had some like cookout on a, on a baseball field, and they had five food trucks that came in and fed kids for free. I mean, talk about the inability to contract kids to your space when the other space has got food trucks for free, right? So in my comparison, envy, and frustration, and anger, when I saw all of their signs promoting their food truck, big day, I tore them all down. Isn't that immature? Isn't that ridiculous? Isn't that silly and childish? I'm a grown man. I have three children. Here I am tearing down another church's stuff. Well, the Holy Spirit just crushed me and shared with me how idiotic that was, how immature that was, and how embarrassing for me that was. Eventually, I went to my buddies who were church planting at that church, because they were now my friends, and I confessed and admitted what I had done. And they offered me grace and love. But what led me to that stupid action? Comparison, which led to envy, which then, if I'm honest, led to a loathing of the fact that they were bigger and had more money than we did. I'm glad that God dealt with me in a harsh, vicious way during that time, in a loving, vicious way. I needed to confess that. But see, we're not above this. No matter who you are, no matter how old you are, no matter what stage of life you're in, comparison can always lead you to a place of envy, and envy will lead to hate. 
I share that because it's important that we grasp the truth of how vital it is to get rid of all aspects of envy in our lives. We need to not walk in comparison. We need to walk in love. The second key of walking in love is the key of repenting. We need to repent of the hatred within our hearts. Repent of the hatred within your heart. Because if we're going to walk honestly, there are people in our lives that we are very close to, if not already, hating. People that we've compared our lives to, ministries or you know, friends or families that we've compared our lives to, that we've walked in envy enough to where we begin to loathe their very presence. When we think of them, we get a little angry. We get a little bit frustrated. We try to purposely avoid the people that are frustrating us to the nth degree. And we need to repent of that. John takes the idea of hate and brings it right into the aspect of murder. Now, he, he said that the evil person, which is like Cain, will be the, the son of the devil and will bring murder. But, he says, if you hate, you've already murdered. Sounds pretty similar to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you were to go to Matthew 5, 22, where the person who hates his brother inside his heart has already committed murder. Wow. That, that's serious stuff. I think sometimes we're, we're going through the Sermon on the Mount uh, on Wednesday night, sometimes we don't take Jesus' words seriously enough. We look at that and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we need to not hate. But he says, Jesus continues in that passage, that if you hate your brother and have murder with him in your heart, you are knocking on the door of hell. You have to look at your heart and say, am I really, truly saved? If I can have this type of hatred within me for someone else, where does that come from? It does not come from the Lord. Hatred only comes from the enemy. Hating your brother or sister or those in the world around you. Hate has no place in the Christian heart. It can be a really good assessment. We ask the Holy Spirit, am I hating someone? Do I have hatred in my heart? And the Holy Spirit loves to answer those questions. Usually it's not soft. Usually it's pretty hard. Oh yeah, you hate this person, this person, this person. Time to get it right. Thanks for asking. And then we have to do the repenting. We have to recognize that we do have hatred in our hearts. Jackman, another commentator, says, The hater and the killer share a common motive. There is no difference in their moral character. Therefore, anyone who holds on to a spirit of bitter hatred and hostility towards a brother or sister cannot possibly be at the same time indwelt by the life of the Holy Spirit of God. We push out the Holy Spirit and accept a spirit of bitterness. There's no way we can walk as Christians without the indwelling, empowering spirit of Christ. There's no way. And so we're either walking in hate or we're walking in the Spirit. We've got to get this right. We've got to see the severity of this issue. And we've got to stop pretending that we don't have hate when we do. Maybe as you pray that prayer, God's like, hey, you're totally good. You're clean. Clean as a whistle. Keep it up. But maybe not. But maybe there's an issue that you need to wrestle with. 
And you need to ask the Holy Spirit of God to give you the power to forgive, the power to heal. We cannot neglect this teaching. The church in the Western world is being torn apart by the enemy because he's creating hatred for your brother and sister. They might look differently than you, vote differently than you, act differently than you, dress differently than you. But if there is hatred in your heart for someone who claims to be a Christian and you see the fruit of that in their lives, it doesn't matter if they vote differently than you, look differently than you, dress differently than you. Because if you have allowed a root of hatred in your heart, you have pushed out the voice of the Holy Spirit and are embracing the same evilness that Cain himself embraced. That should scare us a little bit. That should show us that where we are as the church, the reason why we're not ready for the return of Christ is because we can't get the simple commandment of loving one another right. Sounds simple, but it's not in action. We need to repent of our hatred and walk in the freedom that that repentance brings so that we can love our brother. The third key to walking in love is the key of relinquishing. And now this is verse 16. This is a crux verse. It's very important to the fullness of this particular portion of Scripture. It says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So the key of relinquishing, the third key, we must relinquish our own rights. Relinquish your own rights for the rights of your brother. Relinquishing our rights is not something that we really like to be told to do. We want to be right. We want our stuff for ourselves. And when we have to lay down ourselves for our brother or sister, it gets uncomfortable. It makes us feel not so good because, wait, it's supposed to be about me. It's about my my rights and what I want in life. Why do I have to sacrifice for them? They're not going to sacrifice for me. <laughs> if we take Jesus' words seriously and we take the words of Scripture seriously, we call the words of God sacred and we say that, yes, this is the true word of God. Yes, we are to follow the word of God. We can't just pick and choose the things that we like and don't like in the scriptures. Like, oh yeah, that person is living a, a, a sinful lifestyle, homosexual lifestyle. So yeah, that's bad. The Bible says no. That person's doing this. The Bible says no. But you know what? If you're hating, the Bible says no. We have to take the totality of Scripture and we have to own every word. If we believe that the Word of God is the written Word of the living God, we must take every word and own it. This is one of those words. That we must relinquish our rights for the rights of our siblings in Christ. Jesus sacrificed himself for us out of love. John reminds them in this verse, Jesus did it, so he calls you to do it. Jesus did it first, and Jesus did it worst, because he took on the sins of the world. He took on the, the displeasure of God in that moment when God the Father turned his face away from him. He took on all the wrath, all the sin, and he died a horrible, horrific death for you and for me. If we capture the full picture of the gospel, our response will be 
sacrifice. It won't be selfishness. It won't be what's in it for me. It won't be how good is this thing for me. It will be sacrifice. And this is where we have to really take the scripture seriously. Too often we play around a little bit. And we pick and choose, like Thomas Jefferson, the things that we like and the things that we don't like. And we cut the things out that we don't like or we just don't talk about them. We cannot do that. The word for love in this passage in verse 16 is agape, which means deeply rooted and committed love. And the word for know is gnosko, which means intimate knowing of. So when we see the word love here that in this verse, it is saying this deeply committed love. And we will know that type of love when we live it out and when we allow the reality of Christ's death for us to really hit home. People who know they are loved will respond by loving others. Essentially, if you see someone relinquishing their lives for others, that person really does know what true, authentic love is. Jackman says it this way, if hatred ultimately reveals itself in murder, love, taken to its conclusion, reveals itself in sacrifice. Love does not destroy another's life, whether in thought or deed. Love gives its own life so that another may live. Man, that's pretty deep. Love gives its own life so that another may live. Now, if you were to talk about sacrificial love in our world today, it is almost non-existent. In the world, definitely. In the church, mostly. Even in marriages, mostly. A sacrificial type of love where they're more important than I am. Where I lay down my rights to show my sacrifice to love you. That you are more important than I am. That just does not exist in our world. But here, Jesus in the scriptures of passages like this from 1 John and in the book of John and in the Sermon on the Mount, we see over and over again that the fruit of a believer's life is love initiated through sacrifice. Because if Christ is our great example and we are to be little Christians, we should live the way Jesus lived. Marshall says it this way, just as it is not simply God's habit to love, but the very essence of his being. So a person cannot come into a real relationship with a loving God without being transformed into a loving person. When we come into the understanding of the fullness of God's love for us, as we talked about last week, as children, this is why John led with being loved as children, showing that you are loved by God, that Christ sacrificed himself for you to show his love. He led with that. We saw that last week. And now he says, love one another. When we come to that understanding of love that God has offered to us, our natural response should be to love others. It should be an outflow, an overflow of what he has given to us. The fourth key to walking in love is the key of realizing. Realize that authentic love is both word and deed. John in that passage 
verses 17 through 18. Let me read it again for you. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John is pushing against our, our own culture with this statement. We have this obsession with these two things that we say when people are, are hurt. I'm offering thoughts and prayers. You see that on Facebook? Politicians use that phrase all the time. Thoughts and prayers, everybody. Thoughts and prayers. <laughs> That's just talking words, right? If you have thoughts and prayers, then you're going to ask the person, hey, how can I walk alongside you? Right? One of the things that I think drives people nuts is when, when people are asking for prayer because of a certain situation in their life, I always ask, I, I say, I will pray for you, but what else can I do for you? But what else can I do for you? And I think it sometimes takes people by surprise. Oh, just pray, just pray. No, there has to be something practical that I can do to walk alongside of you, to show you that I love you, that I'm not just saying thoughts and prayers. John is saying we can't just do thoughts and prayers. Prayers are good. No, we need to come alongside and not just have talk, but we need to do it in deed. Authentic love is both word and deed. The Greek word for deed here is ergon, which means action tasks, work. So I'm going to put action to my love. It's like the great DC Talk song, Love is a Verb. Come on, show me hands. Who knows the song? Right, all the 80s kids. Everyone else is like, I have no idea who they are. But it's a great song. Look it up, YouTube it. Love is a Verb. Talks about how love is action. Love is not just words. It is putting feet to your words. That is real, authentic love. It is action. The Greek word for aletheia, which means unconcealed truth, is saying that true love, true love that we can understand as authentic, has action, speaks truth, walks in truth, walks in deeds. It's real easy to say, I love you, but it's a lot harder to act on it. It's real easy to say, I'm innocent of that hit and run and have a t-shirt that tells a different story about your lifestyle. We need to walk in love, authentic love. It's sacrifice, it's service. The way you live your life backs up your lip service to love. How are you living your life? How am I living my life? The scripture should always make us have a time of pausing and asking the question, do I live this way? Because it's not just something to know. And this is why I always pray every Sunday that we won't just have education but transformation. Because it's really easy to read the Bible for information and download. Yes, love should be action. Love should be action. Yes, that's really great knowledge. But the Bible doesn't exist to just give us knowledge. The Bible exists to change our very lives, to change the way in which we interact with the world because if we truly believe the Bible as we say we do, it will change the way we live our lives because the Bible is not just a book of nice things. Jesus didn't just say nice sayings. He's challenging us to live differently through the Word of God. The fifth key to walking in love is the key of remaining 
remain vigorous, rigorously surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Remain rigorously, it's hard to say, surrendered to the Holy Spirit. Jackman says this, what we need to grasp is that love like this is always available from Christ, who it is the only source it can be from. We do not have to look into our poverty-stricken selves to generate a love like that. The more we are open to receive it, the more Christ's love will flood into our lives and overflow to others. When we remain rigorously surrendered to the Holy Spirit, it's like being under a faucet as a cup. Imagine you have a cup that is just continuously under a moving faucet. It begins to overflow because it can only contain so much. And it's a natural outflow where it just begins to spill and splash over everything else. That is how we are to be as believers. That yes, we can receive the love of God and say, okay, turn off the faucet now. I've received what I need. But no, we just stay in the flow, continuously surrendered to the Holy Spirit. And as we interact with other people, as our life bumps up against other people, we will spill the love of God over them. If you have a full cup and you try to do cheers or you slip and you just move a little bit, it's going to spill. That's how we are to live. People who are overflowing with the Holy Spirit, surrendered, remaining, abiding in Him so that when we bump up against other people, they experience, they don't just hear, they experience the love of Christ. This is what we're called to. The commandment of, yes, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, but then also loving one another. They go together. When we are surrendered to Him, we will love. It is a natural outflow. Because when we remain connected to the source of love, we overflow with love. I want to challenge you to remain, to abide in the source of love. Maybe last week the Holy Spirit spoke to you about the love that Christ has for you. Remain in that love. Don't just say, oh, that was really nice, I felt God's love, and then move on with your life. Remain in that love. Because that will then be the overflow. John gives three points at the end of this about remaining. He gives three things that we will have when we remain rigorously surrendered to the Holy Spirit. And I think Wearsby points them out better than I could. Here are the things that, that we see that John is promising to the believers who remain in the Holy Spirit. First is assurance in 19 through 20. A Christian who practices love grows in his understanding of God's truth and enjoys a heart filled with confidence before God. The next is answered prayer, verses 21 through 22. Love for the family produces confidence toward God, and confidence toward God gives you boldness in asking for what you need. And finally, John's favorite word in this entire book, abiding. Verses 23 through 24, when a believer obeys God and loves the family, the indwelling Holy Spirit gives him peace and confidence. The Holy Spirit abides with him forever. John 14, 16. Those are powerful promises that John gives to the believer who resides in the Holy Spirit, who remains rigorously surrendered to the Holy Spirit. I want to live that way. I don't want to tear down signs of other churches anymore. 
I want to walk in love. I want to walk in love for you and you for me, for us together. One of the things I'm convinced of is that the only way that the Western church will push back the darkness in our world that we see surrounding us is that we come back to surrenderedness, surrenderedness to the Holy Spirit that brings love and unity. The church has got to be a family again, one that is no longer broken, but one that is coming together despite our differences. The reason why the early church was pushing back the darkness and seeing people come to Christ over and over again is because unlike people were gathering together under one name, the name of Jesus. And despite their differences, despite their different backgrounds, despite their different histories and their different ethnicities, they came together under the banner of Jesus Christ and changed the world forever. We cannot allow the enemy to win in separating us out and causing us to hate one another. We must remain surrendered so that we can overflow with love. Let us walk in love as we embrace these five keys. Let us start by releasing our envy, repenting of our hate, relinquishing our lives for the sake of others, living what we say and remaining in Him. May we back up our words of love with action. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your love. I thank you that when passages of Scripture come like this, that they should hit us over the head and convict us deeply in our souls, that we are not where we're supposed to be. This side of heaven, we will never be where we're supposed to be, but we can continually strive for Christ's likeness as we surrender to you. Continually ask your spirit to fill us with the power to be that which you've called us to be. I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you will fall fresh upon us. Give us your love for one another. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.